Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. James chapter 2. You can go ahead and start flipping there if you have your Bible. Um, If you need a Bible, there's some on these back tables. Taylor will get you one. Um, There's some over here. Um, Feel free to take one. Otherwise, we'll have scripture on the screen for you. But James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Um, Now, before we kind of jump in, you're in a church. You're around the Christian thing and the Christian people all the time, and you hear words like faith thrown around all the time, right? Like, just have faith. Like, I've got faith. Um, All that kind of stuff. Like, oh man, you have such incredible faith. Like, your life is yada, yada, yada. You hear that word thrown around a lot. And sometimes, I'll I'll hear that. Um, I'm a pastor, and so people kind of get weird around me sometimes. Like, if I'm at dinner, people expect me to pray. If I'm at a wedding, they hide their alcohol, like that kind of thing. But then I'll pray, and like, I'll say, I don't know, I just use words, I pray, and then I always get the, man, beautiful prayer, you're so faith-filled, or like something like that, like it's just classic, um, and it gets me thinking though, like we toss that word around a lot of, of faith, but what actually is it, what does it look like, what does it mean to have faith, um, I think that word, faith, is, is absolutely vital um, to understand and how we follow, follow Jesus. Um, you see, following Jesus is all about going from death to life, kind of like that symbol of baptism, going from death to life. Following Jesus is all about life change. It's about becoming more and more like Jesus himself. And I think it is entirely possible for each of us, for all of us, to go through our entire lives from start to finish of following Jesus, go through it all with an anemic, atrophied, lifeless, and colorless faith that doesn't make any real difference in the way that we live. And that's exactly uh, what James is getting at here and how he kicks off this passage. In verse 14, I'll throw it on the screen for you. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, my family, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? He starts off today's passage with these two rhetorical questions. In other words, he's saying if someone says they're a Christian, they're a believer, they follow Jesus, and yet they don't have anything tangible to show for it, can that kind of faith save them? Is that authentic? Is that real faith? And so James here in that first verse sets up a really good tension for us. You read something like this, and one of the first questions you ask naturally is, all right, what is real faith? What is authentic faith? Um, How do I know that our faith, my faith is genuine? Because we can say that we, we have faith, right? We toss that around all the time. We can say we believe in God. We can be decently more people even and pray a little bit or maybe all the time. Maybe we're good at that. Maybe every day. But what is it that makes our faith different? What does faith look like? Is it just mere belief and praying every so often and giving God a thought uh, occasionally? Is that all there is to it? That's the question that we're going to be tackling today. What is real, authentic faith? How can we know that we have real faith? Um, Now, before jumping into the rest of today's passage, 
Uh, let's take a look at where we've been. We've been going through the book of James, um, start to finish. That's what we're doing all spring. Um, and if you've been following along with us, remember who James is writing to. James is writing to a bunch of Jewish Christians uh, who fled the city of Jerusalem because they were getting murdered and martyred for following the way of Jesus. Some really intense persecution. A lot of them are now living in poverty because they've they fled, they have no money, um, and as a result, because of this intense persecution, uh, they disperse, they, they flee, and they were fearful to just publicly showcase that they were followers of Jesus, which you can't blame them. They were literally getting murdered and, and persecuted and all that kind of stuff. That's a natural reaction, but here's, here's what happens. They start to get a little lazy with their faith. Um, they stop being intentional uh, with their faith. They stop living boldly and faithfully, and they stop putting their faith into practice. And so James writes this letter to them, uh, to these believers, what it looks like to live, reminding them what it looks like to live as faithful followers of Jesus. And he's very good at explaining the why, and he's very practical when explaining the how. Um, and all of chapter one is about how to respond to testing and trials and temptations, and he gives real practical wisdom along the way. He ends the chapter, um, if you remember Ben's sermon, on don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. Typically, we tend to stop as hearers of the word um, whenever we face the hard knocks of life, um, which is a direct quote from Annie, the movie, or Jay-Z, depending on uh, what your childhood looked like. But typically, when we face the hard knocks of life, the reality is... Um, is that it tends to stop at we don't put things into practice. And James is reminding us and confronting us with the reality that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Um, we become new creations and adopt our true identity as sons and daughters of the God of the universe. Uh, we become new kinds of humans with a new way to live. And James says we discover how to live like that and how to do that when we don't just listen to God's word. We don't just read it, but we actually do it, and we practice it. And when he, he says when we fail to do that, it's like looking in the mirror and being like, ah, oh, nice jawline. Like, we look good here. You've got nice skin. Reference to Harry Potter. Um, and then you walk away from the mirror, and you completely forget what you look like. You completely forget who you are. Um, and then last week, Francis opened up chapter two for us, that good-looking guy back there, um, and introduced us to this idea of how we typically tend to treat people and how that all changes in light of the gospel and how Jesus treated us and loved us and gave himself up for us. And here, um, by the way, if you missed any of that and today's your first time, we've got a podcast, we've got a YouTube channel. You can go in and catch up. It's a lot of great stuff um, that these guys have been preaching. But here today, James gives us another really practical example of how our lives ought to look different as faithful followers of Jesus. So with that said, we're jumping into the rest of this passage, starting in uh, verse 15. He picks up. He just asks those questions, and he says this. If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good or what benefit is that? This is how James chooses to begin answering the question of what does real faith look like? Let's just think about this uh, illustration he's using for a second. Just for a moment, I want you to imagine with me. Uh, imagine something terribly dramatic happens in your life. Uh, your parents uh, cut you off, TCU kicks you to the curb, you lose your job at Mamaka or wherever you're working, um, you're not making any money, and you find yourself 
sleeping in like a cardboard box under a bridge, cuddling a mouse for warmth. We there? We imagining that? Okay, cool. You've got the picture. The mouse is cute um, or ugly. Now that that's happening. You are struggling for your life. Um, you are you're here. It's been days, and then suddenly you find yourself surrounded by all your old friends. Or let's just leave your friends out of this. We'll we'll save them for a little bit. You sh- find yourself surrounded by really good people, and it's obvious that you are like malnourished. You haven't eaten in days. Your shirt and everything is all tattered because it's whatever. You're cold. You're shivering. There's like a scar across your face because you got in a fight with a raccoon over a bag of Doritos in a dumpster. Like you're struggling clearly. And then these people, these good people around you and burger in hand on their way to their dinner reservation at HG, they look at you and they're like, oh, you poor soul. Like, I hope you get warm and find some food. First response would be like, dude, what the heck? Like, terrible friends, but also, like, can't you see that I'm fighting for my life out here? I'm, like, literally fighting for a bag of Doritos with a raccoon in the back of Trader Joe's parking lot. Like, can you give me some food? What good do their kind words and warm wishes for you uh, do? Nothing. That doesn't make any difference when they have a literal plate of food that they could give you or a jacket um, for you. Not their, their words don't do anything good. And look at what James says next in verse 17. He says, just like that, in the same way, so also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Pretty aggressive. James, you'll find out if you haven't already, doesn't pull any punches. He illustrates to us that mere kind words and good intentions are useless to someone who is in actual desperate need. Even if you have compassion for them, unless you can actually clothe them and give them food to eat, and your compassion results in action, then your kind words and warm wishes for them mean nothing. They are of no benefit. And in the same way, James says, faith without works is of no benefit. It doesn't do you any good. It is dead, he says. Useless is another word you'll see him say, and lifeless. And what we can already begin to see James reveal to us is that real, authentic faith results in both intention and action. And using the very easy example that he uses here of the difference between wishing someone well and actually meeting their needs, he begins to reveal to us that if we tend to talk about our faith and or the truth of God's word and what we're learning, but we don't do anything or just very little with it, then we may be missing the point. We may be spiritually anemic. There may not be a lot of life or color to our faith. It might be dual, or in his words, he's saying it might be dead. Because just like what he was getting at earlier in chapter one, so often, so often, our faith tends to stop right at good intentions. We hear God's word preached on a Sunday. Uh, We read, read a really great devotional on a Tuesday morning. We listen to a really really good podcast from our boy JP, um, and we get really stirred up and fired up when we listen to it. We get this really great knowledge and insight, and our minds are blown. Our affections are stirred for God. We get this incredible sense of awe and adoration and wonder for God, and we are ready to storm the gates of hell. We are ready to just get after it. We're ready to, and then nothing happens. We hear it all. We get the knowledge. We get the insight, and nothing happens. Nothing happens changes. We don't do anything with it. It stops right there. We know good and well what to do. We feel the conviction, and then we do nothing. 
We don't act on it. We, uh, we know good and well that our friend is in need and someone's hungry, and we have food, but we don't give it to him. We know good and well that our friend is hurting and suffering, and yet we don't go to them and ask them how we're doing because we're afraid it's going to be an awkward conversation. We know good and well that we need to have that talk with the person that we're talking to or our boyfriend and our girlfriend and set up boundaries because we keep crossing the line. We know good and well that drinking and Adderall isn't quite the escape or the help that we thought it was, and it's actually destroying us, but we're not doing anything about it. So often, we stop right at good intentions and don't do anything about it, and we miss the point. And here's the thing. I'm there. I get it. And here's what I find myself doing all the time. I find myself substituting and excusing obedience with the spiritual stuff. I know that I need to set up boundaries. I know that I need to stop drinking or whatever that example is for you. I know that I need to, to, to do something and make something different. And I'll say, okay, I'll just, I'll just pray about it a little bit more. Or I'll just read God's word a little extra today as if that's what's going to atone for me. And so I substitute the spiritual stuff for actual obedience. And James says that our faith is useless at that point. It is useless to us and those around us because it's not making any real difference in the way that we live. We're not expressing our dependence and trust in Jesus. He says our faith is dead because it rests in ideas and intentions, and it's not reflective of Jesus and what he's done or what he calls us to. He says real faith, living faith, is expressed by the reality of and the presence of works in one life. Obedience, something, you're doing something about it. Now, that's a lot. Um, You might not like James that much at this point, or maybe you don't like me, but just remember I'm quite literally the messenger here. Um, But um, I have found whenever the first time I read the book of James, I kind of felt called out with almost every other word, so welcome. Um, And I can imagine if you're anything like me, you're starting to argue at this point with James just a little bit. Um, I can imagine some of the responses to hearing this, uh, like mine, did sound a little bit like James, buddy. Like, I get it. You're fired up. You were literally Jesus' half-brother. You're, like, super into this stuff. Like, I, I get that you're, like, all about the, like, faith and putting it into action. Like, good for you, man. But me, like, I've got faith in here. I'm good. I just express it differently. Like, you're obviously called to do the works thing, but that's not not quite my gift mix, not my wheelhouse. Like, I'm not really, really called to do the same thing. Like, I, I express it, my faith, a little bit differently. Um, and here's what James lovingly says back to that, verse 18. He says, but someone, some of you will say, you have faith and I have works. And then he responds, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. That's a good thing. But guess what? Even the demons believe and they shudder. And right here you're like, dang it, James, why did you have to bring demons into this? Um, First things first, though, James leaves no room for the it's just not quite my gift mix or not quite my, my calling or how I express it kind of narrative or excuse. He cuts that out. James says faith and works are inseparable. And it's not an emphasis thing. It's not a gift mix thing. It's a if you have authentic faith, you will also have authentic works to follow. Works are the fruit of a faithful follower of Jesus, and this is exactly what Jesus teaches himself. 
Um, a couple times in the gospel, Jesus says that the world uh, around us will recognize his disciples by their fruit. Um, or in other words, by what's produced out of them as a result of following him. You see it in John 15 um, and in Matthew 7. And then in Matthew 13, uh, he tells this parable about four different kinds of soils. Um, and the soils represent four different kind of people and situations um, and outcomes where the seed of faith was planted and it either sprouted or it didn't. And in the parable, the first three types of soils, uh, nothing came of them. One was hard soil um, and really harsh. One was rocky. One was infested by weeds. And in each case, the seed m was planted and it might have shown some growth for a little while and then it was completely squashed out and it died. Um, you can go read the story in Matthew 13. But the last uh, the fourth soil was, was good soil. Authentic faith was born and authentic fruit was produced. And here's what Matthew 13 verse 23 says at the end of that. It says, for as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it or does something about it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. Jesus here makes clear that the reality the reality that when a seed is planted in healthy soil, growth will follow. That's just kind of how it works. It's the reality and normal progression of things. You plant a seed in good soil and it'll, it'll grow. And James makes clear to remind us that where there is faith, works will follow. They are inseparable. That's just reality and the natural progression of things. Think of uh, the wings of a bird. We all know what a bird looks like, right? Got wings. We're all familiar. Um, birds have two wings, right? Birds are designed to fly right? We'll leave chickens and penguins out of this for a moment. Um, I want you to think of like a cool bird, like an eagle or a falcon. I don't know, something cool. Um, that super majestic bird cannot take flight with a, a single wing, right? Like, have you ever seen a wounded bird try and flap around? It's actually like kind of sad, sometimes funny. We'll stick with sad though. Um, it like literally like tries to flap around and it maybe, maybe gets a little bit of flight. Maybe gets a few inches off the ground and it's all wonky. It can't control its direction. It can't control how it's, it lands. It lands all funny every single time. But when a bird has both wings moving and when both wings are there and they're moving in unison together in full power, that bird, that sucker can soar, right? Like it can fly. Um, that's how it was designed to fly and to live. And it's the same with faith and works. You need both. You can't have one without the other. Um, neither is authentic without the other. They go together, and it's just the design of the Christian life. Now, on that note, just a quick little sidebar. What I don't want you to hear me saying, what I don't want you to get confused on, um, is that I'm not saying that all of our works have to look the exact same. Um, there isn't such thing as, uh, or that I'm not saying that there isn't such thing as giftings or callings or, uh, or anything like that, because there, there absolutely is. And even in the scripture that I shared up there with you with the different kinds of seeds that were planted, the seed was planted and the fruit looked different in each of them. One to a hundredfold, one to 60, one to 30. All the fruit looked different, but the point was that fruit was produced. Um, Paul talks a lot. He's another writer in, in the Bible. Talks a lot about the body of Christ. Uh, it talks about it in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians, if you want to write that down and go read it later. Um, and how we all have different strengths. We all have different giftings. Um, some are the hands of the body. Some are the feet of the body. Some are the mouth of the body. The point is they all have different functions, but they're all a part of the body. They are all obedient and faithful followers of Jesus. 
So the point is that faith and works are inseparable. Those works can look different, but the point is it's all obedience. Um, And I think there are some things that ought to look the same and ought to be similar marks and traits of believers. Like things like in Galatians 5, if you want to write that down, things like self-control and love and joy and peace and kindness, kindness and patience, like those things should be coming up out of God's people and people who are following him. Um, And we should be growing in those things. Now, to keep on moving, though, let's unpack the whole, whole demon thing real quick. Even the demons believe. All James uh, is saying here is that there is such thing as a belief that is not true faith. He's saying real faith is more than just mere mental assent of I, I believe, um, mere mental assent to truth. Because demons believe that there is a God. They know exactly who he is, they know exactly what he's capable of, and they shudder as a result. They are terrified of him. He's saying demons believe. Like, if you believe in God, like, good for you. Like, demons literally believe in God. But what are you doing with your belief is what makes the difference. Real belief and faith is, is a heart thing. It involves the whole heart. Um, and it responds in action. It makes a difference in the way you live. It changes you. It pushes you toward obedience. And again, becoming more and more like Jesus. Um, it's one thing for me to believe that a plane can fly. It's an entire another thing. And if you have anxiety on airplanes, you totally get this. It's an entirely different thing to actually get on that plane and fly. I can believe that this stool will hold my weight, but it's an entirely different thing to actually sit on this stool, right? Um, some of you have heard me shared the example of Pepe Le Pew before. If you're not familiar with it, you can literally uh, chat with me after this. Pepe Le Pew was a Frenchman. Great story. I would love to share it with you, but we don't have time. Um, But mere belief is more than just simple mental assent to truth. You've got to actually do something with it, and that's what makes the difference. Um, And pick up in verse 20. James says this. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, like James, chill. um, Do you want to be shown that faith apart from works is useless. Um, He's giving us an example here, and he uses Abraham. He says, was not Abraham (coughs) our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, you read this, and if you've been around and you know your Bible just a little bit, you're like, hold up. You're saying I'm justified by works and not by faith alone? I thought I was justified by faith alone. Again, Paul writes about that a lot. A lot. Um, you're justified by grace. You're justified by faith alone. And so is this contradicting Paul? Um, I would say no, and here's how I want to explain that. Paul, when he writes about you're justified by grace um, and by faith, you're saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. What he's saying and what Paul is opposed to is a works-based salvation, aka the idea of your works earning your way to Jesus. Um, He writes this in in Titus 3 verses 4 through 8, which I'm going to throw up on the screen for you. This is Paul. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God Our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent, he says, and profitable for all people. And this is the exact idea that James is getting at here when he says you're justified by works and not by faith alone. He's saying that your faith will result in works. Works and effort, he's saying, are essential after salvation. They follow um, your life with Jesus. And that's what devotion to Jesus looks like. Um, In fact, there's this great guy who wrote a bunch of books named Dallas Willard. You should all get to know him and read him. Um, He has a great quote that um, I love, and he says this. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. And that gets at the idea that Paul and James are both getting at so articulately. It is grace, he says, that fuels your effort um, to look more and more like Jesus. There's another guy who wrote a lot of books named Charles Spurgeon, um, and he makes the this statement of he's saying the same grace that saved my soul is the same grace that changes my life it's the same grace that fuels my obedience it's moment by moment grace the holy spirit has been given to me and that's what fuels my life with jesus to look more and more in like him and walk in obedience whenever the hard things come along or whatever god is asking of us if life with jesus just think about it this way begins right here here's what all of these guys are saying Works cannot get you to that point. Only Jesus can get you to here, to this salvation point where you are saved by grace through faith. But works and obedience will naturally flow and follow after that point. They can't get you here. That's only grace and that's only Jesus. But your response to grace and to Jesus is a life of obedience that flows out. That is uh, essential in our discipleship to Jesus. And that's how it plays out with Abraham in this um, this story here. In, in short, no time to go through the whole story, but Abraham's belief, deep trust of God, if it was this point, started in Genesis chapter 15. And then this story that James is talking about happens about 30 years later in Genesis chapter 22. And this account that James is telling of Abraham's works in offering up his only son Isaac, which was a huge deal, um, was a response to and demonstration of his deep rooted faith. And James is saying it's an excellent example of what authenticated Abraham's faith, what proved it to to be real. Um, Now, all that said, um, for anyone in this room who is kind of familiar with Abraham um, and who he is and and his story, you could be thinking, okay, Abraham's kind of like an unfair example, right? Like, of what it looks like to act on your faith. Like, he literally is called friend of God. Um, He's literally Father Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Like, why are we using him? Like, of course he is a great example. Um, he doesn't seem like a normal human, average average human being who's got flaws and scars on their face from, like, fighting with raccoons and stuff. Um, look at James, verse 25. Uh, he says, in the same way, in the same way that Abraham was justified by showing his works, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Hold up, James. Are you about to tell me that a prostitute can have a relationship with Jesus? 
1,000%. Let's get to know Rahab and her story just a little bit. Because in contrast to Abraham, Rahab is a shocking and scandalous example of faith and faith being worked out. You see, Abraham was a patriarch, father of many nations. Rahab was a prostitute. People look at Abraham and they, at first glance, see a godly, upright, moral man. And they look at Rahab, they see an immoral woman. Abraham was Jewish. In fact, he was the OG Jew. And Rahab was a Gentile who Jews used to despise. They thought they were unclean and defiled. Um, Abraham traveled everywhere following God's leading. Um, and Rahab was a nobody who probably lived in a cardboard box in a gutter or under a bridge. Rahab lived in the city of Jericho, which was thought to be indestructible at the time, big city. And there she is in what's functionally a brothel. She's a prostitute. Hearing all these rumors and all these stories of the one true God, Yahweh, which is what he is known by um, and what they called him in the Old Testament. She's hearing all these stories of, of what he's doing through and with a people known as the nation of Israel and how they seem to live differently. Some people mock them, but they're hearing all these incredible stories. And she's sitting there, I imagine, probably exhausted and defeated with and hopeless with her, her way of life, where she's treated as nothing more than someone's property for a paid period of time, right? I can imagine the deep amount of shame that she feels, the lack of worth that she feels from being used over and over and over again. And no doubt, she realizes her desperate need for a rescue. And she probably felt too far gone and without hope for one. Um, but then these spies, these messengers that James mentions here from Israel come along and they visit her. Um, she's used to a lot of men visiting her, but these guys look just a little bit different. Um, they're a little different from the men who usually come to visit her. And she had never experienced or seen people quite like them before. They were sure of who their God was. Um, they were telling her these stories of what he could do and what he would do. And they sparked this sense of hope within her. And all of that, all of that opens her up to faith. And long story short, she believes, and it's proved what, in what follows with the tiniest, simplest, well, actually, it's, I would say it's really brave action, incredibly brave action. You see, she was ready to see this God move. These guys were just telling her about it. She'd heard all the stories. She so believed that he could actually rescue her, that when the time came and people come knocking on her door, asking for the spies, ready to kill them, she hides them, and she covers for them doesn't seem like a huge deal. It doesn't seem like much. But long story short, those spies return to their army, nation of Israel, and they return back to Jericho, march on it, and defeat. And the walls of Jericho come crumbling down. They defeat their enemies, and it goes down as another monumental moment in history where God proves himself to be steadfast and faithful. It is an incredible story. There's a lot to it. You should go read it for yourself in the book of Joshua. But what I want you to take away is this. The tiniest smallest seed of faith was planted in Rahab, a prostitute, right? She's there. It just gets planted. It's sparked, and then it sprouts, and it wasn't all at once. It didn't look like a light switch for her, right? She didn't just stop being a prostitute right there in that moment, but because of her faith, she took the smallest movement toward, a toward change, the smallest action, just a small baby step in the direction of obedience. And I don't know, 
I use that story, and I love that story, because I don't know who needs to hear this in this room today. But look at the story of Rahab and know this. You don't have to clean yourself up to believe in God. You don't have to clean yourself up to be used by him. No matter what your life looks like, no matter what mess you've gotten yourself into, no matter what you've done or maybe haven't done or maybe what's been done to you, no matter how much shame you feel or how too far gone you feel, no matter whether you feel worthy enough or ready enough, you have a God that simply asks you to believe in him, to believe in what he's done and what he will do, and then act on it. Take the tiniest step of obedience. You have a God who says, I love you right where you're at. You don't have to clean yourself up. Come and follow me. I've got something so much better for you. And to all of us in this room, hear me say this, that obedience is the mark of a true and authentic faith. And it absolutely will look different for all of us. Um, Again, different steps of obedience for all of us. Some of us might look like one thing. It might look like cutting out, I don't know, I'm using this example picking on it, but like cutting out uh, drinking. Or it might look like putting a block on our phone or deleting that app that always leads us down the road to look at porn or whatever it might be. It might look like adding accountability into our lives or whatever it might be. It might look different. There's an entire passage in Hebrews 11 that says all these people who acted out of belief and faith in God, and some they started an entire nation of Israel. Some, they covered for spies. One guy literally just made a boat. Like, all of these things that look different, but the point is they were all obedient, and they all followed um, God's calling on their life. The point is that your faith is demonstrated to be real and authentic when it does something, when it does something to grow in the image and likeness of Jesus and moves in the direction of obedience. It doesn't stay stagnant. Now, with that said, let's look at the last verse uh, for today, verse 26. He kind of closes similarly, uh, similarly by the way he started. He says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If the first verse that we covered today asks the question, here he finally answers it. Um, what good is it, my brothers, that kind of faith? If someone says they have faith but no works, what good is that? He says it's of no good. It's not real. It's not authentic. It's dead. He says it's like a body without a soul, which is what we call a corpse, right? Like, it's a body for sure. It's just a dead body, right? He's saying faith without works is faith for sure. It's just dead faith. And remember, following Jesus is all about going from death to life. We're not supposed to just stay dead. What's the point of that? God doesn't say, I love you right where you're at. You don't have to clean yourself up. You can stay there in that thing that's destroying you and ultimately leads to your death. No, he says, no, I have something better for you. I have life for you. Um, Look at Romans 6 verses 1 through 4. Um, This is Paul again saying, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? We don't stay in that place. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. It is passed away. The new has come. Real faith is a living and active 
faith. It acts on the grace that it's been given. It realizes it's been changed. It's been made new, and it walks in that newness of life. It doesn't stay dead or in the old, old way. Your faith is what fuels a life of obedience. Your faith is what fuels walking in the new life you've been given. It's what produces the fruit and fuels the work that James is talking about, which is just simple obedience, becoming more and more like Jesus. And that takes effort, which isn't a bad thing. Effort is fueled by moment-by-moment grace. Um, Now, here's what this means for you to just wrap this up. If you're in this room and you don't quite have a relationship with Jesus yet, and you're like, I'm not sure if this is me. I'm not sure if I have that kind of faith yet. Your first quote-unquote work is the work to believe. John 6, verse 29, this is Jesus saying, he says, the work of God is this. The work of God is to believe in the one who he has sent, who is Jesus. Jesus, God in the flesh, who came down to earth, wrapped himself up in flesh and bone, who lived a perfect, sinless life, and died for our imperfect, sinful ones. And then who walked out of his tomb three days later, crushing the power of sin and death. And who, if we believe in him, gives us his own spirit. Again, the spirit that fuels our life of obedience. Our spirit to graciously guide and fuel a life of becoming more and more like him until that final day when every tear is wiped away, there is no more sin, and we are perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, living forever in the kingdom of Jesus. And so if you're not in Christ and you're listening to this, it's not an accident that I think you're, you're hearing me right now. Your first work is to simply believe in Jesus who loved you and gave himself up for you despite whatever mess you're in, whatever your life looks like. And then the rest of your life is just long, slow obedience in the right direction. The work of the believer is to live a life of obedience. Um, Oh, and by the way, you want to know who uh, was one of Jesus's great, great grandparents? Uh, It was Rahab, a prostitute. Literally Rahab, God chose her and used her to be in the line of Jesus. And Jesus, by the way, if you need more proof that your life doesn't have to be perfect to be used by God, his entire family tree is filled with prostitutes, people who literally cheated on their wives or slept with other husbands' wives and then killed them so they wouldn't find out with some horrendous stuff. And then it all leads down to Jesus. Um, Now, if you're in Christ, the last thing that I want to give you here to walk out of this room with, um, here's my challenge evaluate your life. Evaluate your faith. What does it look like? What is it fueling? Is it fueling anything? Is there any effort on your part? Are you just expecting to get something from a Sunday sermon or a coffee appointment or a podcast or whatever it is? Is there actually faith-fueled effort in your life to look more and more like Jesus? Um, worship is going to get back up here in a second, and we'll wrap this thing up but I'm going to leave you with another, another story that Jesus tells um, in the Gospels. He talks about this idea of having uh, of old wine and new wine. Um, and he says, you're not supposed to put new wine in old wineskins. And, and here's why. You have new fresh wine that's been uh, fermented, and it's great. It's a great cab. It's a great zin, um, and it's ready to go. You put it in a new wineskin that's fresh and can expand and can breathe and that can hold the wine. If you put fresh wine in an old wineskin, that skin will burst, and so you've ruined it all. You, you no longer have the new wine. It's all on the ground. It's spilled everywhere, and you no longer have that wineskin. That old wineskin is good for nothing. 
And he says that in light of, okay, you're a new creation. I've given you a new life. I've given you my spirit to walk in all that I've commanded you. I've get, uh, you are a new person. Walk this way. Don't go back to the old. It is useless now. Walk in obedience. Don't stay dead. Don't stay stagnant. The old wineskin is of no use anymore. Walk in the new life. And my hope and my prayer is that we walk in that kind of life. We are new creations through Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, uh, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it speaks to us, Father, and I just pray that you, uh, you poke and prod on our hearts now. Just by your spirit, you would reveal um, whatever needs to be revealed to each of us in this room. Uh, the things that we, uh, we need to step forward to, um, the steps that we need to take towards you, um, towards becoming like you, or even just to simply uh, know you. Father, we thank you that you, uh, you save us by your grace, that you accept us right where we're at. You don't tell us to clean ourselves up and to get our lives together, Lord, but you love us right where we're at. That is so kind and so gracious, Father. And we thank you that you have something better for us on the other side, that you don't leave us in our, our sin, you don't leave us in our brokenness, but you, by your grace and your spirit and faith in you, fuel us towards, towards what's better and towards what's whole um, and towards a life and life abundant. Father, we need you to be able to walk in that. Um, we need your conviction by the spirit. We need your spirit's help and guidance all along the way. Um, and so, Father, that's our prayer. We just pray you provide, and it's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.